Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about a software called Kodi MD, and it is a markdown software that runs inside of a web browser. You run it on a self-hosted on a server and you access it through a web UI. And I thought I liked it back then. It has since taken over my life. I want to start by saying, well, let's start from the beginning. When I started doing podcast, I had to learn markdown because that was the standard in the podcast industry. And so that's just what we use. And so that's what I learned. And I quickly discovered that even though I continued to do the Ask Noah show notes inside of Markdown, because that's what I had always used, I could actually use it for a lot of other things. And so very quickly, I began to start documenting all of my client notes inside of Sublime Text using Markdown. And I had this system down where I would run Sublime Text locally on every machine, and I would also run a copy of C file. Now, C file on the back end would take care of syncing all of my notes to all of the other machines. The advantage of that was I could use local software and access my data from anywhere. And reloading a machine never was really a problem for me because essentially, as soon as I installed C file, all my notes would sync back down. They're small enough text files. And so it was pretty rapid. And there was really no cost in creating a bunch of notes. Yeah, I have a note for everything. I don't like web apps. And that was one of the things that initially drew me towards Sublime Text was I could run local software on my computer. I had a separate icon. I could open it. I could minimize it. I could tab between it if I was copying in and out of a web browser, all of those things. But there were some problems. First of all, I cannot begin to describe how much I hate Google Docs. Now, I'm thankful that Google allows Linux users to run their software simply inside of a web browser. And so there's no penalty of using Google Docs on Linux as opposed to Windows or Mac OS. I'm thankful for that. But it's a terrible, terrible software. And Google does a number of different things that penalize a user if you're not using their Chrome browser. So for example, if you want to copy and paste in Google Chrome, you can right click and copy, right click and paste. You can use the keyboard shortcuts, control C, control V. Now, if you go to Firefox and try and do that, it won't let you copy and paste. You have to use the keyboard shortcuts. I don't necessarily mind using keyboard shortcuts, but when I'm highlighting text, it's a real pain in the tuchus to take my mouse and select a piece of text, then go back to the keyboard, control C, then go back to my mouse and choose the different window and select the area that I want to paste the text and then go back to my keyboard control. It's stupid. I should be able to just right click and control copy. I've been able to do that for years. And the most frustrating thing about it is it's not technically possible. It's not that it's not technically possible. Google does it in their own browser, but they want you to use Chrome. And so there's all these little penalties if you're using Google Docs outside of Chrome. And even in Chrome, it's a terrible experience. I hate it. 
But one of the biggest problems I ran into with my Sublime Text uh, backend syncing solution, which, by the way, I'm still using for a lot of things, but the problem is if I'm on a machine that I don't own, if I'm on a machine that I don't run. And so I'll give you a perfect example. When I do show notes over at the radio station, I have to use the computer they put in front of me. I mean, I always have my laptop in front of me too, but it would be really nice to have my show notes up on their computer. Now they're not going to let me install Sublime Text, and even if they did, um, I wouldn't want to have to have all of my data syncing down to their computer. So I just use my laptop, and in fact, I've actually replaced my laptop screen. I plug my laptop into that display just so I can use that display. Cody MD has changed all of that for me. As a friend of mine, Ryan, aka DOS Geek, turned me on to Cody MD, formerly called Hack MD. And again, we talked about this a little bit on the show, but Let's just forget for a moment the the actual feature set. This is the best web app I have ever used. It feels like a native app. If you wrap this in a electron wrapper, so I had actual con- window controls, a minimize, maximize, close, that kind of thing, I would believe that this is an actual native app. That's how good it feels. So put aside for the fact that it is a really fantastic web app and it does real-time collab. That is to say that it's super responsive. In Google Docs, you get that stupid colored cursor that bounces around. So if you're editing a document with somebody else, it can be very, very distracting. The way that Cody MD does it is they have a little block on the left side of the page that allows you to color code who is editing the document. So if you choose to look over at the little bar at the left-hand side, you can see the colors and who is editing the document. But past that, it's a very unobtrusive cursor that's just going around the document and making changes, which is what you'd want to see in a collaborative editing suite. So putting aside that, which it does phenomenally and what it's built for, first of all, it looks incredible, has a dark mode, and so again, gives it that more modern, uh, robust, enterprise-grade feeling app instead of something that was kind of hacked together. You can have the choice to see the code only, you have the choice to do the preview only, or you have the choice to see both in a split screen. So what that means when I'm writing the show notes, I have the ability to see the code over to my left, or I can have the code take up the entire screen because I don't need to see a render of it. Then when I'm actually doing the show, I can look at just the preview portion. I don't have to actually look at the code. If I want to go back and edit, I do have the split pane view where I can both look at the rendered view as well as the unrendered view. And let me tell you something else that has led to. It has led to far less markdown mistakes on my part that my producer doesn't have to fix. And uh, just in the two weeks that I've been using this, it's been clear how much better my markdown has gotten because I can actually see a live preview of what the markdown looks like. And it also means I'm learning new features of markdown because their tutorial inside of this thing is absolutely phenomenal. And so Cody MD, you know, makes suggestions of here's how you could format this text and here's how you could do that. And I start to implement that stuff and then I see how it actually renders and I go, yeah, that looks way better. And so my learning of Markdown has actually gotten better. The way that permissions and sharing works are very intuitive, very simplistic, very, very easy to to use. So each document gets a unique string after the web server ID. So let's say you have your notes server running at... um, mynotes.com or something, right? The a document ID would be like mynotes.com slash 1Z57514LZVB, whatever, right? And so it's a unique link 
that unless it's shared, the, the other user doesn't have access to it. So you can't guess the name of documents, which I like. Inside of the privacy settings, you can set a document so only the owner can read and edit it, so nobody else can see it, even if they have the link. You can set a document so the owner can edit and registered guests can read the document, but registered guests are not allowed to edit the document. Only the owner is allowed to do that. You can set it so all registered guests can both read and edit the document. You can set it so that registered guests can edit it, but anybody, even if you don't have an account on the server, can read it. Now, that particular mode I find to be remarkably useful because there are so many times that we want to have a guest that is going to join the show and we want to give them some access so they can see what's going on in the show, but I don't necessarily want them to be able to make changes to the show. And so they have, uh, there's a mode for that, right? And then there's a free for all, which I also really like, which is anybody registered or otherwise can create a, or can edit a document or read a document. Now imagine the community power here. If I can put a document up and I can publish a link and say, Hey, go to this thing and we're going to create a show or we're going to discuss this particular feature set. And anybody that wants to add something to it could, and you could have a collaborative editing of, I don't know what the upper limit would be, but lots and lots of people. When you decide that you want to go and actually publish the document, there are a number of different ways you can do that. So you can download a raw markdown copy, which I've done a couple of times and pulled into sublime text and continued to edit. Love doing that. You can download a rendered HTML file. So if you want to write a blog post or something like that, you're able to do that and publish that HTML to a static site, or you can download a fully rendered PDF. And this is what I started using for clients. We always document all of the work that we do. Anytime we go into a client infrastructure, and I was having a discussion at a, at a Linux conference at Linux West Northwest with a gentleman who was asking, would we be willing to do some consulting for him? And he said, and I said, yeah, absolutely. And he goes, well, here's, here's what I want to make sure that we're on the same page. I want to hire you. I want you to do the things that I want you to do for me, but I want you to show me how to do them so that I don't have to rely on you. I don't want to be married to you. I just want to use your expertise to kind of get me started. And then I kind of want to take it from there. And I said, we do that all the time. Uh, we don't believe in vendor lock-in. We want to re-earn business because we provide value to you, not because you're locked into some stupid contractor because there's some vendor lock-in. We don't want to do that. So absolutely, we'd be happy to do that for you. And so I started showing him some of our talking about some of our policies and procedures. And one of the things is when we leave a site, we leave documentation for the user. So they have all the usernames and passwords to the routers and all of that stuff. Now, to be clear, if you hire us to come in and manage your network and then we give you all the documentation, you go screw it up. Guess what? There's a cost and it's not cheap for us to come back and refix it and figure out what you did. Uh, so don't confuse the two, but we're happy to provide you with the documentation. That documentation always starts as markdown because that's how I store it on our internal system. And that's what I reference when I'm out in the field is because I'm just banging away inside of sublime text. Now I'm banging away in, in code EMD. The great thing about that PDF functionality, I can render a PDF of Markdown and give it to the client. And now they have a copy that looks really nice and it's composed from our actual field notes. Amazingly powerful. A feature that I have not played with much, but I have used a couple of times. As you might imagine, in my job, I give a lot of presentations. So we get a phone call and they say, hey, we want you to come in 
and we want you to talk to us about this Linux thing and how it could benefit our company. And we want you to talk about how you could virtualize our Windows infrastructure because Windows is a flaming mess and it gets, you know, caught with viruses and all of those kinds of things. Would you come in and give a presentation to our CTO and our CEO and our CFO and talk about the advantages of it? And I say, sure. Now, previously, what that meant, because you want to tailor presentations to the organization. So you're speaking directly to their needs. Previously, what that meant is I got really, really good with Libre Impress. What I've been playing with, because a lot of times it's not really a, you're not trying to, it's not really about the presentation. It's just, you're trying to convey information. And a lot of times these are just short 10, 15 minute uh, presentations. And the rest of it is filled with discussions and questions. So one of the things that Cody MD does is it has a presentation mode or a slide mode. And so you can write a presentation in Markdown, choose slide mode, and I can actually do a slideshow presentation right from my web browser. They actually have really cool little built-in transitions. Now, I'm not going to win any presentation awards because it's mostly text with some backgrounds and a couple of basic image and video embeds, right? But they do have some pretty snappy transitions that look pretty cool. Not over the top, but they look cool. And the biggest thing for me is I can type far faster than I can click. And so when I want to create a presentation, even if it's nothing more than I want to get the idea out of what's going to go onto each slide and how I'm going to kind of flow from one topic to the next, this is a great way for me to kind of bang that out of my head. And then if I want to, I can go and pull it into an actual presentation template and make it even better. But the fact that that feature exists is phenomenal to me. And uh, I've used it a couple of times to give presentations to clients. It's working absolutely fantastic. So all of that to say, if you haven't checked out Cody MD, that's Cody C O D I M D. You can find more at Cody C O D I M D.org. If you are a developer, uh, you absolutely have to check this out because the ability to do real time collaboration code building with other developers, I can only imagine the possibilities of that. If you are a Google Docs user and you're not using fancy formatting stuff, obviously, if you're going through and making a bunch of formatting changes and you want, you know, a bunch of different colors and different color text and all of that kind of stuff, that may be a little more uh, uh, some features that probably aren't really designed to work with Cody. However, if you're like me and you're using Google Docs essentially just for real time collaborative document editing and you just want to brainstorm ideas. This is absolutely the system for you. And I, we've gotten a couple of calls. We've gotten a couple of emails and a couple of text messages from listeners that have said, hey, what do you do for notes? Well, I tell you what, this is a whole new way for me to do notes. By the way, the mobile presentation, the tablet presentation, spectacular, absolutely as good as the desktop presentation. So you can use this software on your laptop, on your device, anywhere. Of course, it's open source. Of course, it's self-hosted. So you own your data. It's all on your server. It's all on your system. They have a free demo that you can check out at cody.demo.codymd.org. Make sure to check it out. Absolutely has two thumbs way, way up. We'll continue to use it um, because it is absolutely the best web app I have ever used and has become my go-to markdown editor. One of the most commonly cited reasons to me as to why people are not using Linux on the desktop is because of gaming. A lot of people like to relax by playing games and as they should they are typically used to the windows gaming platform where you download a game you install it and you're good to go on linux especially if you're new to linux it can be a little daunting because if your game is on steam you just download the steam client and then your library will sync and you're able to install the game that way 
If it's a native game, like it's an indie game that has a native Linux installer, then you would go to that site and download the installer. And that could be anything from a deb to a dot run package. I mean, it could be if uh, it could be a snap at this point. There's all sorts of different ways that a individual game might be bundled. If the game isn't officially available on Linux, then you might have to use a wine wrapper or something like play on Linux to actually get the game installed. And so there can be a number of different ways that you go about installing a game or getting a game to run. And even then you're not going to know exactly what the performance and exactly what the experience is going to be like. Well, there's a project looking to fix that. And it is the Lutris project. If you game on Linux, then you've heard of them. We had a chance to catch up with them at scale. Here's that audio. On the floor at scale in 2019, we bumped into the Lutris folks, Matthew Comedon and his manservant, Jordan. Lutris is an open source gaming platform that promises to make gaming on Linux easy. Welcome to the program, gentlemen. Hey, welcome. Hello. Thanks for taking the time to be here. I appreciate it. So start by giving me the 30 second elevator pitch for anybody that's maybe not familiar, like maybe a guy who pretends to be a gamer would be, is not familiar with Lutris. Tell me what the platform is. So Lutris is a gaming platform that you install on your Linux desktop that will make it easy to install and run games. And that can be any game, whether it's like your Linux or Windows or console games. Um, and it, the goal is to really make the process straightforward to remove all the pain points into like selling games and uh, running them. And we got with uh, user scripts, um, we can have a script for like pretty much any game in existence made from the uh, late 70s to like nowadays. If there's a way to run it on Linux, Lutris will do it for you. That's kind of the main goal here. That's awesome. I love that promise, and I like what you're doing to make games accessible for people on Linux because ultimately it helps the platform grow. Now, you guys have done some really fantastic work with the Lutris desktop client. Talk to me about that. So the Lutris desktop client is the, the main tool used to, uh, to launch games and install them. Um, it's your basically your game manager you install. This is, this is what you, your starting point into using Lutris. Uh, there's a lot of other components, but that's the, the main manager of it, the main central points. Uh, you can then add games to the clients uh, from either the, the website or we have a large selection of games. And you can just start uh, running installers and start building your library and uh, for different you install like runners, we call them runners, it's like any program that runs a game, so it can be Wine, it can be MAME, it can be RetroArch. Um, you can install, like, you can build, sync your library with GOG, you can sync your library with, with uh, Steam, your desktop games that are already installed on your Linux system. Uh, all of this is, is available in the client itself, yeah. And it gives you all of the options to, uh, to change, like, uh, to tweak your game as well. With all of the options that are already on the market with Wine and Crossover and such, um, what is the mo what was the original motivation to create Lutris? So my original motivations uh, were to make a gaming client that would uh, not be Windows specific. Um, there were at the time uh, Play on Linux, uh, which was very Windows only, like only Windows games. And there were, I wanted also to push the Linux games, all the open source games. We have a lot of um, open source engines, a lot of open source re-implementations, and I wanted to, to take advantage of that 
And right now, we have a lot of Steam games that run through open source engine rather than through Wine. Yeah, like uh, Ars Magica, or not Ars, Ars Fatalis was the one. Yeah, um, yeah but that, that's the thing too, is for a lot of games that have engine re-implementations, it can be a bit of a daunting experience for new users to compile, compile this engine re-implementation, copy the game assets to a folder, Having something to orchestrate all of that, uh, to make it as user-friendly and as simple as possible is the big thing. Um, for example, we were uh, running The Witcher 3 um, yesterday as a demo. Uh, right now we're doing Doom. But Do Doom's really easy to get up and running under Linux because it's uh, just a Windows application with a Vulkan renderer. Linux already supports uh, Vulkan, so you can just run it under Wine with no real issue. Uh, but for The Witcher 3, you need something like DXVK. You need a specific version of Wine. Um, you may need to. You can point it. You may have a Steam version or a GOG version, um, and getting 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 that installed was relatively simple. Aside from the download time of like 19 gigabytes for The Witcher 3, you can get it up and running in 20 minutes with Lutris by pressing a button, and that's pretty astounding, considering all the work that you would need to do previously in order to get something like that running to even a remotely playable state. It's also about like crowdsourcing this effort of getting games running, which can be pretty tricky. And usually in the, the Linux world, I mean, it's people hacking on a console, and they're, if they're not having a software project they're contributing to, they're not necessarily sharing back to the world. So what Redis does is it provides this kind of framework you can build scripts on, and it's pretty simple language. It's like YAML, YAML based. So it's pretty similar to what you would have into the DevOps world, like Ansible. Uh, but it's for specific for video games, and you can describe the setup of a video game, and all those scripts are community provided, and anyone can <clears throat> change a script, like make adjustments to, and or like fork a script to provide it. Like for example, if you have a installer for Steam and you want to install for GOG, you just have to fork it, change a few lines, and you get the, the install for GOG. And it's, it's also a lot better because previously, if you wanted to get games running under Wine, you'd have to do a lot of Googling to sort of find out what the specific setting is or if you needed to do registry hacks or DLL overrides. This centralizes all of it, which again makes it a lot more accessible. Um, and you, you don't have to try and find some forum post from 2009 that was never, that someone asked a question, you get the follow-up post, oh, I fixed it, and then nothing. So the... the this kind of stuff is very important. So I, I don't feel that there's one project that is fully dedicated to uh, video game preservation. Mm -hmm. And that's why what I'm trying to, to achieve is the games we have right now. Well, I want to make Linux a good gaming platform because I believe that this is the platform that is the best suited for video game preservation. Mm -hmm. And we have all these open source programs that will make sure that we, the games we have at the moment, they will be playable in the future and they will keep, like we won't lose any, like a part of our culture because we, you, we lose support for like an API. And we see like that's, this with Apple, they keep like deprecating API. Like, uh, or, or, uh, or Windows for that matter. Yeah. Uh, you, you, will, you will be hard pressed to play a lot of older games on something like Windows 10. So. Um, ha having Linux be a relatively stable platform, having projects that attempt to re-implement engines using more modern techniques, uh, more uh, cross-platform code, allows those games to be run outside of the original intended platform. 
Um, eventually, we're going to run out of arcade parts, right? The, and those machines will be dead forever. And we will, like you said, we'll, we'll lose a huge swath of games that people grew up on. They were foundational. They were incredibly influential. And like Matt, you said, the, pr the preservation of these games is very important. So, yeah, that's why you try to find every possible program that, uh, um, that helps a game run. And we try to promote all the open source implementations of those engines because that's where, um, I mean, we have like a full systems like MAME that will emulate like thousands of different systems or engines that run one game, like one specific game. But it also like keeps the games alive. I mean, it brings the game makes the game better than what it was intended to be originally, so that makes it... What are some of the most popular games that that uh, Lutris is fundamentally making available on Linux? Rather, it's Overwatch. Windows Overwatch, World of Warcraft. Uh, we are having issues with League of Legends because most of the time it works pretty well, but at the moment I think they, updated, they made an update and it doesn't work. Like, so, yeah, it's basically World of Warcraft, League of Legends, Overwatch is... Uh, any any game that is uh, not on Steam or doesn't work like, very well on Steam Play, well, it will be pretty popular on Lotus. So, um, Warframe is also one of them. I think that Warframe is like uh, on Steam Play. So, there, there, there's some problems too when you get into game really popular games like Fortnite that uh, implement some sort of anti-cheat software. What needs to get done to actually run these games on Linux will usually trip up a lot of anti-cheat software. We saw that with uh, Diablo 3. Blizzard was banning accounts using Wine just to play the game. So, a lot, like a lot of the very popular games that are coming out will theoretically run, but they'll have restrictive DRM or anti-cheat software that effectively stops people from playing them with other people. And the, the, this, is, this is the big roadblock right now to get more people gaming under Linux, I think. And I guess just and I guess just moving that needle forward, getting making people aware of what it is you're doing, so that maybe these anti-cheat software can start considering this stuff, right? Yeah. It's it's it's, a, it's being considered it, right now. I mean, yeah. Valve is currently discussing with these anti-cheat makers, and we'll probably have a resolution in the next few months, I believe. Yeah, that, that sort of stuff is also really hard to manage because if you start advertising, hey, our anti-cheat software will not scan these methods, then people who are writing cheats will start using those methods to construct their cheats. So. I understand that video preservation is a very important part of Lutris. Talk about that. Um, yeah, so this is this was like the, the one of the base motivation of the project. Um, there did there is this trend in the current video game industry to make very like short-lived games, like a video game as a service, more than video game as as, as a cultural products. So. I'm trying to, to go in the opposite way and like keep uh, video games as a work of art or work like a, a work of a cultural aspects of video games and not something like you consume like uh, you log in into a it's not I mean video games are not Facebook you know right. they are not like a service and it, 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 it's it's also it's also a weird space of commercial art right because it is a product that people are selling um, right now you don't. If you're buying a game through like Steam or Origin, you don't actually own that game, right? You own a license to that game, um, which 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 is problematic because if they decide, hey, we're going to revoke these licenses, your game you can't legally play your game anymore. Sometimes it will just not even work. Uh, you're trying to get the crew running. That requires a, that requires a persistent connection to a server. A lot of people really like that game, but when they shut that server down, 
it's going to be entirely unplayable. Um, th uh, there, there are a lot of projects that are attempting to preserve game servers for like old MMOs as well, like uh, like uh, Ragnarok or uh, Ultima Online or stuff like that. The integration with the Humble Indie Bundle and Steam is a major win for Lutris, and it's also a major win, obviously, for the users because it simplifies that experience. Yeah. Can you touch on that? Um, yeah, Humble we haven't integrated yet, but it's, it, it is coming. Mm -hmm. We have done recently GOG, and this is uh, quite an achievement because it's, it's been in the works for like a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, GOG is supposed to bring their own client to Linux, but so, they still so, haven't provided it. Supposed to. Every, every couple months, you'll see a forum post. Hey, can you guys port uh, GOG Galaxy to Linux? And they say, oh yeah, it's, it's on the roadmap. So the, one of the great things about being in an open source community is a lot of people will say, I'm tired of waiting. I'm just going to make it myself. Mm -hmm. And then Matthew can say, well, I'm going to take your work and integrate it into my project. And then everyone will be yeah. better for it. So yeah, they, they have like pretty open API. Uh, I could use and integrating GOG into the, the Lutris client was pretty easy and now that I've done that once I can do this pretty much same thing for Humble Bundle so Humble Bundle should not take that long uh, I want to make the same thing for Uplay and Origin which are Windows exclusives but if that's the case that means we have like, op like official support for those Windows clients and the games themselves they work pretty well so they, we keep adding more and more like, support for different platforms, mm -hmm. and we try to be in, as independent as possible, so now not make ties with a specific um, vendor, and like, be, like, be independent, not, be, not keep ties with anyone, so that we don't, um, we don't get skewed by like, um, uh, like commercial aspects, you know? Matthew Commandant, lead developer for Lutris, and his manservant, Jordan. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the Ask Noah program. We'll get you back on the show real soon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our next guest is the founder and owner of a project that we have been using internally here at the Ask Noah Show. Essentially, when we schedule all of these guests to come on and we arrange interviews and we try to schedule which events we're going to be at, we came to the conclusion very early on that we are going to need a self-hosted scheduling system because God knows I'm not going to rely on the cloud. And so we started looking for solutions that were out there. We wanted them to be self-hosted. We wanted them to be open source. And there was one that fit the bill very, very well because it was very easy to get up and running. It was very fast, it was featureful, it worked well on mobile, it worked well on the web, and it's called Easy Appointments. And so after we started using it, we said, this is really great. Why have we not heard about this? And why is nobody else talking about this? So we reached out to the, de the developer and said, we've got to get him on the program. And so he joins us now, Alex Chelegitis. He is the lead developer owner and founder of Easy Appointments and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. So I guess, Alex, let's start with this. Tell me a little bit about your development background. How did you get involved in open source? What are some of the projects that you've worked on before Easy Appointments? I, I guess, tell me a little bit about Alex. Well, I started programming with 15. Uh, my father gave me a book of Visual Basic back then. And that was the very first thing. No, actually, the very first thing was uh, working with micromedia effects. Um, I used to buy an IT magazine and there was this example of creating a game with Flash. And I, I, there was a tutorial step by step 
and I did that and that opened a whole new world to me. It was so great to, to be able to move some objects in the screen and make something become alive. Um, that was great. So the next step was to get this book of Visual Basic and started to go there. Very simple stuff. And then with 16, I got my first professional uh, project, meaning that this was... Um, it was arranged to be uh, sold and be installed to, to professionals out there. It was a CRM. Uh, I did this from scratch with Visual Basic and had to, um, had to get very deep into how to prepare a production level release. I used to have a friend and he was, he was um, a dedicated Linux user. So back when being a Linux user was not a trend. And he, he used to talk about all these projects he found and downloading them, compiling them and, and making some changes. And that was, that was cool because if, when you start and if you're like a beginner and programming or, or whatever, you can learn a lot of things from this. And therefore I was looking into it and he showed me some projects and then I was I, was, I got also interested in that. And then there were sites like uh, the Google Projects and GitHub was pretty new back then. And yeah, that got me into that. For those that maybe aren't familiar with Easy Appointment, it's a software program that we've been using here on the Ask Noah Show, but give us the 30-second elevator pitch. If somebody hasn't heard of the software Easy Appointment, what is Easy Appointment? Let's start with Easy. Um, so Easy Appointments is an online web scheduler uh, that you can download and install on your server and it will be your online scheduling app. So you can manage your appointments, you can uh, place some availability there and you can use it as your own calendar or let people book with you. Um, you can manage your customers, connect your calendar to Google Calendar and keep it synchronized. Um, and also it supports, it's actually pretty flexible. You can map your business structure, uh, the employees you have to user roles being available in easy appointments and then have them being logging in and handling their own calendar. With so many software as a services out there, and you touched on this just a little bit um, with the tie into Google, a lot of people are kind of on that Google bandwagon. And so they just exist inside of that Google infrastructure. At some point you must've said the world needs an appointment scheduling system that can be self-hosted, that's open source, that's secure, and that can be owned by the user where the user owns the data. Um, why did you actually create easy appointments when you have so many alternatives already out there? Oh, that's a bit funny because actually I started the project, um, as my BSc bachelor thesis, um, I had to pick a project, you know, in the university at the final year. And one of them, it was an, the creation of an online web scheduler that could connect to Google Calendar. And then I, yeah, I saw this, I found it interesting, and then I started doing it. But here's the thing, um, whereas most students, they do the job and they want just to be done and move on, I thought, okay, this is a very good opportunity to work very well and, in, and you know, um, work into details of the project and provide a, 
an enterprise solution and moreover I can also put it online as an uh, open source project so everyone can benefit from it right because I'm doing the effort anyway so yeah just try to make it good we're using your project in-house to schedule guests and keep track of them and so on and so forth when things go on to air what are some of the feedback that you've gotten from your other users what are you hearing about the project and what people are using it for I've seen through the years a huge variety of people using it from all over the world. And the purpose, I mean, it's everything from doctors, hospitals, um, massage, um, hairstyling, everything that includes having appointments or arranging some meetings or everything that has to do with a calendar is a good a place for easy appointments. You could just use it there because the, the system does not require a lot and it's pretty simple itself. So you don't really have to configure a lot or you can you don't have to, um, I don't know, check through the settings deep inside and, and, you know, make it work for you. It's just like this. So you have the fields, you have the data and you have the representation in the UI and you can use it in any, any way you like. So, so far I was getting very I'm getting very positive feedback um, of how easy the app is to use and that it looks nice and people enjoy using this and I'm pretty happy about this. I also have some feature requests, of course, and this is uh, all part of the plan so that in the future uh, new releases will come with more features and more um, use cases for, for the user group. Talk a little bit about how the booking rules and business workflows work. The booking rules. Um, this is a very interesting topic. Um, basically, we have to think that in easy appointments, we have services and service providers. Um, services is something that, like, for example, um, a doctor examination. This is a service. And a doctor named John Doe, for example, He's going to be the service provider. He provides that service to customers. So the doctor has a working plan and the working plan says um, he will work on Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And the rest of the week is free or there is some other availability. So you have to predefine this. And then the... Um, customer when he goes to the booking page he's gonna select which service he wants for example uh, examination and then you have to select the provider you want for that uh, booking for example John Doe and then you proceed by selecting a date and entering your data and confirming the, the appointment so in the background what happens is um, whenever the customer makes a request for getting the availabilities in the browser. We are going to load the appropriate working plan day, let's say Monday, and we are going to, you have to consider this as, a, as a, a frame, like we have from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., right? And within this period, we have a lot of slots, time slots, that could be possibly uh, available for the customer. So the app goes through its slot and it checks, is, there, is this slot reserved? 
Is there, for example, any other appointment in the system? Or maybe the user has blocked this time because he will not be available that day. And it only delivers back the available time slots. And this is what the user can select at the end. Tell us a little bit or give us a brief overview about the appointment and customer management features. Customers are able to book and handle their appointments in the front-end part. And they don't have to log in about this. They just do this with a unique uh, link they get with an email. Uh, but there are users that have access to the backend section and they have to log in with user credentials. So once they do this, they get access to the, an administrative section where you have um, a calendar overview and you have also the customer's uh, management page and some other pages as well, like mentioned before. Um, so the calendar overview, uh, you have a calendar uh, similar to Google Calendar in the UI, and you have all the events placed in the correct places, as you would imagine, with a calendar. And you can drag and drop them, you can resize them, you can click on them, get some information, you can edit, delete, uh, you can just select your time and add a new appointment. I mean, these are all features that are you would expect from a Google Calendar, they are there and they work in a very similar way. Um, and you can also block um, time slots and make them unavailable so uh, a customer wouldn't be able to book during this time. And um, in this page, you can also enable the synchronization with Google Calendar. Talk, talk a little bit about the integration with Google Calendar, because again, I think there's a lot of people that will be interested in your project because they want to de-Googleify their life. And at the same time, they have to exist in a world where other people are using Google Calendar. So I guess, can, I, can we dive a little deeper into the integration with Google Calendar? Sure. Uh, this is one of the most important features of the product because, um, you know, those days you have so many services and you want to somehow connect them and make them work together in an appropriate manner. And what the Google Calendar synchronization does is, um, first of all, the administrator of the installation of the Easy Appointment installation has to generate a pair of uh, Google Calendar API credentials. And you have to do this because um, with Easy Appointments, you own your data. They are not synced with something external or I cannot, for example, undertake this syncing on behalf of the users, right? So they have to generate uh, from the Google Cloud Console a pair of API keys, which is pretty simple. And those keys you enter back then in Easy Appointments. And that makes Easy Appointments um, able to synchronize events with your Google Calendar. So the process is pretty similar. You can go to a provider's calendar and enable the synchronization. And then you get this pop-up um, asking for user consent in order to use your, your calendar data in Google. Uh, once you proceed in this, um, this is what happens. Every booking that is made on Easy Appointments is being automatically synced in your Google Calendar. And every modification afterwards, for example, if you remove your events uh, in Easy Appointments, it will also be removed on Google Calendar and so forth. And every change you make in Google Calendar can be synced uh, with a click of a button in uh, Easy Appointments. So there is a button saying Sync Calendars. And once you click this, uh, it will fetch the events from the outside and try to merge them with the events on the inside. So they are both the same. 
many people, I would guess the vast majority of your customers probably run this as a standalone site. They, they just run, they install it and set it up on the server. And it's actually fairly simple and straightforward to just get up and running. Um, but there is a tie in into WordPress. If you want to, I suppose, embed it into WordPress. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, we all know how popular WordPress is. So I had, I wanted to make it very easy to integrate this, to integrate the booking page in your WordPress site. So what, what you can do is there, there is, um, I've authored a WordPress plugin some time ago and you can install it in your WordPress site and you can search for the easy appointments plugin. And that plugin has two main modes. Uh, the first one is to install a new, to make a new installation of Easy Appointments on your existing server. So you have the ability to press the install and then the plugin will fetch the latest source and put it in your server. Or you can link um, an existing installation of Easy Appointments, meaning that um, if, for example, your WordPress site is called example.org and then you have an installation uh, in the example.org slash book, um, you can go there, provide the links and the paths. They are all in the form. There are actually two fields, pretty simple. And then once you connect those two, you are able to use a short code in a WordPress and display the booking page directly inside your WordPress pages, which uh, I think it's pretty handy for people that want to book that want to have a booking form in their page, but still have a full feature booking system, right? Because this is the difference. Um, there are already other booking modules for WordPress, but you can have your separate booking environment and still integrate it in your site very easily. Now, the sort code is, um, for those who don't know this, it's just, you need, you, you put some brackets and easy appointments on your, as a content for a page or a blog post that you have and the plugins are able to detect this and render the booking form in there. And yeah, this is how it works basically. For anybody out there that wants to get more involved with easy appointments, maybe they want to make a financial contribution to help you develop easy appointments. Maybe they want to actually submit some code or help you develop it themselves. How can people get involved with the project? Mm -hmm. uh, the very first spot is GitHub. Uh, we keep track of the issues uh, and yeah, we, we accept pull requests and um, yeah, you can follow the, co the code updates uh, that are being posted. But the second uh, place, very important and for maybe better for non-technical users, is the community we have. There is a community group um, on uh, Google Groups page. And there you can post your questions, you can help other users with their questions, and we get a lot of feedback. Uh, there are some discussions, what would be better for the future. Um, yeah, and I guess this is the best place to go and connect with. I'm, I'm pretty glad to, to say that there are some users that are very, very nice to the project and they are very supportive and they're, they're doing a great job there. The website is easyappointments.org. Alex Chalagitis, he is the owner and founder of Easy Appointments and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Alex, I just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to come on the program and share the project. We're going to continue to use this in-house. It's an absolutely fantastic go-to project. I absolutely recommend all of my listeners go out and check it out. And uh, we'd love to get you back on the program real soon. Thank you very much. It was nice to be here and I wish you all the best. 
Keeping with the theme this hour of self-hosting and open source stuff, we came across a really interesting project, really neat thing. It's called Archivebox. You can learn more at archivebox.io. And it is an open source self-hosted web archive. And so Archivebox takes a list of website URLs that you want to archive, and it creates a local static browsable HTML clone of the content from those websites and saves it as HTML, JavaScript, all the media files, all the PDFs, all the images, everything, and preserves access to that website so that if they ever go offline, you have a essentially a copy of it. I think this tool has so much potential. So first of all, archive.org has obviously changed uh, the internet because it really did mean that once something is on the internet, it is basically on the internet forever and has allowed us to catch people in lies and people that try to spread in misinformation. It also has allowed us to recover things that, you know, we, we liked. I mean, there's been a couple of times I've gone back and looked at old websites that uh, from my youth as it were, where I wanted to pull back and, and, and visit some nostalgia and they were on Wayback Machine. And I'm like, oh, that's really fantastic. So I, I think that's, I think that's really cool. And I think the power of that to be in individual hands is very cool. So just from a content preservation standpoint, uh, this is a neat project and something you'd want to check out. But something else occurred to me as I was mulling over their website and kind of learning about how the software works and all of that. And that is that there are oftentimes I am traveling or going to be on a plane or something like that somewhere where I don't have Internet connectivity. And it would be really fantastic to have offline copies of a given website saved, especially if that given website has, you know, show prep material or something like that, because they don't actually need it to be on the internet. I just need downloaded copies of the website. And I know what they are ahead of time that I can review while I'm on a flight or in a car or, you know, sitting someplace where I don't have internet. And so I spun up a VM and started playing with this a little bit. And what I found is that it's not, terribly practical because it ends up trying to download the entire site, not just the articles that I'm interested in. And so it ends up eating up space like a crazy person, but it, the, the concept and the tooling is there. And of course this could be refined uh, down the road to be more selective of, of specifically what it downloads and all of that. But I really think that the concept of being able to download websites and store that data, especially when it's open source, especially when it's available, that anybody can do this is very, very cool. So you'll want to check this out. Uh, it is archivebox.io, archivebox.io. Check it out. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check it out and let us know what you think. One of the things I want to accomplish in 2019 is to put more emphasis in the show on the feedback. I feel like as the host, I have failed you because we don't focus enough time in the show on feedback. Part of it is just that there are so many exciting, fun things to get to in the world of Linux that it always seems like talking about the feedback from the previous show, there isn't enough time, but I understand that that really is an important function of the show and it's a way for us to kind of connect and be able to talk to one another. And so we are going to start setting some aside, aside some time at the end of the show uh, to make sure that we can address some of that. I'll start out with an email from Ryan. Ryan writes into live at asknoahshow.com and says, I have tinkered with Linux on and off for years and finally committed to trying to make it work as my daily driver. I need to manage some Windows servers using an RDP client. And after a quick search, I found Remina. I'm quite happy with Remina. It was easy to add each of my servers, and it's nice that it gives me a list that I periodically need to access of my servers. There is one surprising thing. I wouldn't say it's serious enough to call it issue, but it's certainly not ideal. I do not want the RDP window to take over the whole screen. I like that Remina allows me to specify a resolution, 
but the only option appears to be in the 1024 by 768 aspect ratio, in other words, non-wide. A few overlapping 1400 by 900 windows on my 1920 by 1080 monitor is my preference, and I was surprised when that was not an option. Is Remina the best RDP client out there, or would you recommend something else that would give me a list of servers and greater flexibility in setting my my desktop dimensions? Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed listening to you and learning from you for the last two years. So what I would tell you is that there is the option to choose a custom resolution, and then you're able to set the display uh, from the toolbar. And that would be the only thing I can think of that would solve your particular issue that under Remina. Now, there are a couple of other free RDP clients for Linux. I have used a number of them. I personally have found Remina to be the best, with FreeRDP being a close second. The nice thing about FreeRDP is it's very, very uh, customizable. FreeRDP, excuse me. Very customizable, but it doesn't have the robustness, I guess, of the UI that Remina has built in. Remina to me feels like the Microsoft RDP client for Linux. Um, and so that's usually my preference. But there have been a couple of times where we've had clients where all they do is work on virtual environments. So their virtual computer is their computer. And then the computer that they actually physically sit in front of is nothing more than a dumb terminal to get them access to the, the virtual machine. And so in those instances, what we've done is we've actually built scripts for free RDP so when the Linux computer boots up, it automatically RDPs into a Linux server that is running Windows virtual servers. And as far as they know, they are presented with a Windows desktop and they're none the wiser and everything runs in the background. The nice thing for us from a system administration standpoint is all of those machines are being snapshotted and I can spin up or destroy machines just by clicking on on a couple of buttons and blue screens don't really mean anything to us because I have console access remotely from anywhere as long as I have an SSH connection and uh, the internet. The other thing you might consider, it sounds like you're a system administrator and so you do a lot of the system administrating things. So you might check out free RDP and check out the custom resolutions for Remina. Both of those things I think could fix your issue. Although free RDP, I'm not sure is going to give you the list that you're looking for. You might want to check out some software called Simple Help. And Simple Help, which by the way just came out with a new version recently, is an absolutely fantastic piece of remote controlling software. And it's designed to work on cross platform. So it doesn't do RDP per se. It has its own agent that runs on the machine and then it presents that entire machine back to a central tech console that gives you access to a number of different things. And you're able to monitor the uh, the disk usage, you're able to monitor how much RAM is in use, the processes that are running, you can remotely install uh, software. They have what they call toolboxes, which allows you to have a set uh, you know, group of executables or bash scripts or Linux installers. And when you run that toolbox, it automatically provisions a machine with some software on it. Uh, it allows you to see which machines are online, what their local IP address is, what the public IP address of the router they're sitting behind. It is a system administrator's dream tool. And I think it's a really fantastic piece of software. It's what we personally use to manage all, all of our servers. And that if we have a client that has a Windows server, we enroll it into SimpleHelp. Um, the nice thing is, too, you also don't have to worry about forwarding RDP ports and opening them up to the Internet because it's all working over an encrypted tunnel that SimpleHelp establishes. So it's a really fantastic, very, very powerful tool. The downside is the cost, right? So every simultaneous session that you want to run on SimpleHelp is a license. And I think the license starts at like 300 bucks. 
And so, uh, essentially, it's a, it's a, once you purchase it, you own it forever. So if you purchase, you know, three licenses and uh, you pay your $900, you know, for 10 years, you're able to remotely have simul- three simultaneous sessions going on. So there is, I think it's a, a very good value, but that cost keeps people out. And if you're the kind of person that likes to have multiple windows open at the same time, that's, you know, the cost is going to add up there. It doesn't affect us so much because we have multiple licenses on hand. We have to do that so we can accommodate multiple technicians. In either case, we are out of time. That's what the music means in our ear. We have to go. But we'll be back here next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Visit us at asknoahshow.com. See you next week. <laughs>